All right, well, welcome back to the Corinthians seminar. And this teaching is going to be on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, which is the love chapter. And so before we, we get into the text itself, I want to mention a couple of, of things that are important for us to remember. This chapter is often quoted at weddings, and it is often uh, discussed in the general context of Christian living, and I think it belongs there. I think it does absolutely belong there. Um, this chapter definitely does present broader information about love and how we are to act around each other in love. So I think we certainly can apply these things in a more general context. Uh, that's certainly possible. Uh, there's no problem with that. But I think it is important to remember that these uh, verses, this chapter, comes in a more specific context, and that is the context of, of gifts or manifestations in the church. So, in light of this, love is the answer to the question, how should we manifest God's power when we come into a meeting? Well, we should do it in love. And so with this framework in mind, the specific aspects of love that Paul draws out in his description of love is going to be apparent, I think, for us as we go through and, and take a look at this chapter. Why does he use the specific things that he uses? Fee's opening remarks on this chapter also... Um, I think makes some, some excellent points. I'm going to quote him here again. It says, quote, It is hard to escape the implication that what is involved here are two opposing views as to what it means to be people of the Spirit. For the Corinthians it meant, quote, speaking in tongues, end quote, and having wisdom and knowledge, in their case, pride, and thus without a commensurate concern for truly Christian behavior. For Paul it meant, first of all, to be full of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which therefore meant to behave as those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, which is from 1 Corinthians 1-2, of which the ultimate expression always is to walk in love. Thus, even though these sentences reflect the immediate context, Paul's concern is not simply with their overenthusiasm about tongues, but with the larger issue of the letter as a whole, where their view of being people of the Spirit has caused them to miss rather widely both the gospel itself and its ethics, end quote. I thought that was a fantastic quote. So love is critical to the gospel itself. Love is critical to Christian ethics. And then very specifically, it's critical to the spirit, the spirit moving, uh, being people of the spirit and the spirit moving in our assemblies. So with that in mind, Let's start with verse 1. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So, to have love here means simply uh, to, to act in a loving way. If I, uh, It says, but have not love in the ESV. So, that, that means um, to act in a loving way. If I'm not acting in a loving way. Uh, one interesting thing about the symbol and the gong, the clanging symbol specifically, Phoebe points out, was sometimes used in pagan rituals in Corinth. 
Uh, Fee says, quote, to speak in tongues as they were doing, thinking that they were spirit people, but with no concern for building up the community, is not merely to speak unintelligible words. It makes one sound like the empty, hollow noises of pagan worship, end quote. So what, what Fee is unpacking for us here is something that they would have understood immediately upon listening to this or reading this, those who could read it. And that is that um, speaking in tongues without interpretation, it's uh, not just unintelligible, which he's going to talk about in, in chapter 14. It's not just unedifying. It doesn't just not edify anyone, which he's going to talk about in chapter 14. But it also, it sound, it's, like, it's like empty worship. It's like empty noises, uh, things that would have been used in pagan worship. So I thought that was fascinating. One other note here about tongues of men and angels. Uh, some commentators suggest that this is hyperbolic, that Paul is speaking hyperbolically. Fee actually doesn't think it is hyperbolic. Fee thinks that it's possible that tongues of angels are involved with speaking in tongues. Um, I don't have a real big opinion on that. I just want to point out that there are, are people on both sides of that debate. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers that understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul uses emphatic language here. All mysteries, all knowledge, and all faith. All, all, all. And as Fee says, quote, if one person could embrace the whole range of charismata and the full measure of any one of them, but at the same time would fail to act in love towards someone else, such a person would amount to nothing in the sight of God, end quote. I think that's a good frame up of that verse there. Verse three, if I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So now Paul moves beyond the usual gifts or manifestations to talk about giving everything to the poor and even giving up his life in some sense. Either action, if it's done without love, will not benefit the individual doing those things. Uh, certainly if you gave all of your money to the poor or whatever, the poor would be blessed by such a gift, even if you did it not in love. They would be blessed by the funds. Um, now there is a textual issue I want to point out about the deliver my body up to be burned and, and Fee does a long bit on this. Um, I'm not going to get all into the nitty gritty on it. I just want to point out that, um, some texts have, uh, burned here and some have boast. Um, so if I, uh, if I deliver my body in a way that causes me to boast, I think is sort of how the other way would, would go. Um, either way, burned or boast, the, the main point here, the basic understanding here is any action, no matter how positive it is, if it's done without love, it's of no profit to the person doing it, even if the person receiving the benefit of whatever that is, there might still be a benefit for that person. Uh, but for the person doing it, if they don't do it in love, um, then there's no profit for that person. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 together because we have a long list of uh, attributes here of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. <clears throat> 
So here again, we have listed attributes of love that are generally true. These are things that are generally true of agape love. But again, especially true in the context of the Corinthian situation, specifically in relation to gifts. Uh, love isn't quick to respond, but is instead forbearing and patient. Love is actively kind, even in the face of ingratitude. Love does not envy or put us in rivalry with each other. Love serves. Love does not boast or behave as a braggart. As Fee points out, the boasting could be a reference to those in the Corinthian church who are pitting themselves against Paul. For example, see chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 8, verse 2, chapter 14, verse 37. Uh, love is not arrogant or proud. Love is not rude. And that word rude means to behave shamefully or disgracefully. Love does not insist on its own way, but rather seeks the good of one's neighbor. Love is not irritable or easily angered, but rather has a long fuse. Love does not resent others or does not count up wrongdoings. A deeper understanding of that particular component suggested by Fee is it could refer to something like the one who loves does not take notice of the evil done against them in the sense that no records are kept waiting for God or humans to settle the score. In an American parlance, we would use the phrase like get even with. Love is not worry about getting even with someone else. Uh, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing either in a global sense, war, or in a localized sense, something like someone failing at doing something. As Fee puts it, quote, but for the apostle, love stands on the side of the gospel and looks for redemptive mercy and justice for all including those with whom one disagrees, end quote. Verse uh, 7, we can understand the love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things is, very simply we could say, love can handle anything. Love can handle anything. Moving on to verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Love never ends. As our own Jerry Weller has taught recently, God's very nature is love. He is eternal. Therefore, love is eternal. I thought that was a fantastic point that Jerry made. But while love never ends, prophecies will end. Um, and I think we can read all of these things in this verse in the charismatic sense, not in the um, more generalized sense. So tongues, tongues in the charismatic sense will end. Um, knowledge in the charismatic sense, you know, like the word of knowledge will end. Uh, prophecies will end. You know, we won't need prophetic words anymore. We'll be in the presence of God and of Jesus, you know. Uh, tongues. We will all speak a language, presumably, in the kingdom of God. We'll all speak the same language, but we won't need speaking in tongues in the kingdom of God. Knowledge, word of knowledge. We'll still know things, but the charismatic idea of word of knowledge will be gone. So unpacking this in its context, what Paul is essentially saying here is that the gifts or manifestations of the Spirit will be unnecessary in the future kingdom of God. So, 
we will we just won't have the gifts anymore we'll have love love will still be there but we will not have the charismatic gifts um like i said before we will have language it'll be one language babel the curse of babel will be reversed uh, we will still know things we just won't need word of knowledge as it is now we will understand all prophecies how they were fulfilled and how they uh, worked in, in scripture and so forth. We won't need new prophecies. There will be no new prophecies to be made. So the context here is Paul is saying love is eternal. Love's going to last. It's, it's a now thing and it's a kingdom thing. And he's saying that the manifestations or gifts of the spirit are simply a now thing. They're very profitable. They're very profitable, especially when done correctly, as he'll describe in the next chapter, chapter 14, especially done in the right, um, in the right way. They're very profitable, um, but they're not eternal like love is. Now, let's, let's carry that understanding forward into the next couple of verses. Verse 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. As Fee points out, in part, in this context, means for now only. It's a time-bound thing. Uh, it's like an idiomatic way of, of saying for now only. We have word of knowledge for now only. We have prophecy now only. So the comparison that's being made is between what's time-limited, gifts of the Spirit, and what's eternal love. As Fee later says, quote, Paul's distinctions are between now and then, between what is incomplete though perfectly appropriate to the church's present existence and what is complete when its final destiny in Christ has been reached and we see face to face and know as we are fully known. End quote. Against those who want to say that the perfect coming is a reference to something before the return of Jesus, Fee points out that the whole context here has to do with the return of Jesus. That is, for example, when we will know fully, as it says in verse 12. I think it's also important to note that fee footnotes, um, basically that every early church father read this passage as referring to the return of Jesus as well. So what I'm gently doing here is I'm gently pushing back against our modern cessationist friends who suggest that uh, the perfect coming might be like the Bible or something like that. Um, that. That all of the early church fathers that we have that commented on this section, they all interpret this to be talking about the second advent of Jesus, the return of Jesus. And so not only do um, modern cessationists have to have, they have an uphill battle with the text itself, with what, how we're unpacking the text, in its own context, which is the primary, in my mind, the primary concern, the secondary concern would be, well, why did all the early church fathers read it the same way that the charismatics do? I think it's a, an interesting point for us to keep in mind. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. This analogy serves to further the point that Paul's making here. The, the spiritual gifts are here for a period of time, and then they will no longer be needed. Fee says, quote, The behavior of the child is in fact appropriate to childhood. The Spirit's giftings, by analogy, are appropriate to the present life of the church. Especially so, since from Paul's point of view, 
They are the active, active work of the Spirit in the church's corporate life. On the other hand, such gifts are equally inappropriate to the church's final existence because then, as he will go on to argue, I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Here, the implicit contrast with love, which will never, uh, the, the, uh, here the implicit contrast is with love, which will never come to an end. Love does not eliminate the gifts in the present. Rather, it is absolutely essential to Christian life both now and forever. The gifts manifestations, on the other hand, are not forever. They are to help build up the body in the gathered assembly of God's people, but only in the present when such edification is needed. End quote. I think that was excellent analysis from Gordon Fee on this verse about the, the difference between childhood and becoming a man or becoming an adult. That even though we're in the child phase right now, it's appropriate for us to play like children, to do the things that children do. That's perfectly appropriate. When we grow up, when we go and enter the kingdom, we will no longer deal with these things. But it's not because these things are inferior. These things are absolutely appropriate for the time that we're in. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The word for links this to the preceding, and that strengthens in my mind Fee's assertion that this is all about now versus future. You know, we go back to verse uh, um, 9, and we talk about for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, and Fee said that idiomatically means, you know, for, for now, for this time. And I think that is strengthened by verse 12 here. Um, so the first phrase has to do with the limited sense in which we understand God now compared to how we will know God in the future. And as Fee says, quote, in our own culture, the comparable metaphor would be the difference between looking at a photograph and seeing someone in person. As good and often as helpful as a photograph is, it's simply not the real thing, end quote. Uh, the past phrase furthers that point and connects to what Paul has been saying about gifts of the Spirit to this point. He says, in the end, quote, in the end, Paul seems to be saying, we too shall know in this way with no more need for the kinds of mediation that the mirror illustrates or that prophecy and the utterance of knowledge exemplify in reality, end quote. So that's talking about the, the mirror, you know, the mirror and the photograph. Um, so we, we will no longer need these other things to understand God, to experience God. Uh, we will be directly in his presence. That's what all this is saying, is that uh, the gifts are for now. They're beautiful for now. They're definitely what we need now. They help us with what we, we, we have now. Um, we, but this is still knowing in part. It's knowing God in part to, um, to evidence the, the manifestations of the Spirit. That is knowing God in part. We will know him more fully when we see face to face. It's just like, it's just like a mirror. It's just like a photograph. Now, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul now adds love and hope, or excuse me, faith and hope to the conversation. Faith and hope are not charismata. They are like um, love in some respects. You know, they're not gifts. They're not manifestations. Um, but Paul's point here is that just like 
the charismata, faith and hope are things beneficial in the here and now that are not going to be beneficial in the future. We will not need faith in the future. We will not need hope in the future. Um, there's nothing more to hope for. Once we enter into the kingdom of God, that is our final hope. That's it. No more hope needed. Uh, faith, faith, um, trusting God is um, some task in our day and time because God is not as visible as he will be. But in the kingdom of God, he'll be all around us. And faith or trust in him will be so automatic that it won't really exist in the sense that it exists today. And so faith and hope, they're also not eternal. Um, and so love triumphs over them because it is fruitful now and it is fruitful for all eternity. And so um, that is really um, a nice little package there on 1 Corinthians 13. And again, the focus of 1 Corinthians 13 is not in, you know, the, the big sort of cessationist takeaway from it is, is that tongues are going to cease and they think that that was past. But there's nothing in this chapter that points that direction. It all points to the life, the Christian life right now, needing those gifts or manifestations like tongues just as much as we need faith and hope now, just as much as we need any of the other manifestations of the Spirit right now. We need, we need tongues. We need prophecies. We need word of knowledge. We need all these things in our church community for it to be a vibrant uh, church community for it to be a, a vibrant place where God can demonstrate himself. And so um, that is 1 Corinthians 13, um, the love chapter, uh, specifically focusing in on the, the context here in between verses, ver, uh, chapters, excuse me, 12 and 14. So next time we'll be looking at uh, prophecy, we'll be looking at tongues and how they are set forth um, in a meeting.